This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. I'm Arian Ballou. Shortly after graduating college, I landed a fellowship at a radio newsroom out in the Midwest. Reporting on the local stories every day, I covered a lot of topics. Broadband, healthcare, toy drives, factory strikes. But the most intriguing story to me was the last one that I did there. It was about a prison education program. Educators from our local college went to a nearby prison every week and taught college-level classes. English, history, philosophy, those classes were made up of the incarcerated men and women working towards their associate's degrees while also serving time. The story also got the biggest response out of any that I covered. People sent me messages of appreciation for writing it, and some had stories of loved ones who they say were unfairly locked behind bars. A story about how some people were helping folks in prison really struck a chord. You know, education can change a lot of people's trajectory in life. The more educated you are, the, the, the more likely you are to vote, to be civically engaged, to participate, to make good decisions, all of those things. So educate, you know, knowledge is power and education is power. And so, you know, I'm a big proponent of education for everybody, including this population. That's John Donnelly, an educator at Piedmont Virginia Community College, who also runs their higher education and prison program. We'll hear more from him later in the show. See, the U.S. has a prison problem. Until recently, we had the highest incarceration rate in the world, and we're still sitting pretty at number six, with almost two million people serving time nationwide right now. And our good old Commonwealth of Virginia still beats that national average. Yippee. When Democrats held the state House and Senate a few years ago, Virginia did pass some pretty substantive criminal justice reform. But now, the state house and the governor's mansion have flipped red, and they've been proposing initiatives to roll back all that legislation. So what are advocates for criminal justice reform dealing with right now? To answer that, Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner sat down with Rob Poggenklass. He's the interim executive director at the nonprofit Justice Forward Virginia. They discuss a little about how we got here and what still needs to be done to end mass incarceration in Virginia. There's a really common emotional instinct when it comes to crime and punishment. There's the old cliche, you do the crime, you do the time, right? And I think a lot of Americans agree with that, you know, that a person commits a crime, they ought to ought to be punished and, and serve a sentence. What I think most Americans don't quite understand if, if they don't have a criminal record themselves is that there's effectively a life sentence attached to having a criminal record. And, and now we've gotten to a place where a third of Americans have a criminal record. Adults, it's between 70 and 80 million, the last I checked. And now with the internet, all employers and, and most landlords look at someone's criminal record before employing or housing them. And so if you have a criminal conviction, your life is infinitely more difficult once you're out in terms of finding employment, finding housing, education, chaperoning your kids to school. There's just so many ways in which a criminal record messes with your life later on. And so it's not simply a matter of you do the crime, you do the time, because you're stuck with the record in perpetuity. And, and that's a real problem. Virginia, until recently, was one of seven states in which you you can't seal or expunge a criminal record. Um, we have a new record sealing law that's going to take effect 
in 2025. And that's going to make a huge difference. I think on the Justice Forward Virginia website, I saw that one of the statistics that said that in 2015, Virginia's prison population had increased more than 300% since 1983. So I was curious, could you explain how did mass incarceration unfold in Virginia during that time period? Like what were some of the policy tools used to increase the prison population in the state? Absolutely. I can point to a year that it happened. It happened in 1994. So in the early 1990s, there was a national sense that crime was just getting out of control. And by the mid-1990s, a lot of states had turned to that issue and, and tried to lock up more people for longer. Unfortunately, what had happened was no one really knew why crime had crime rates had gone up. And then all of a sudden, crime rates started to go down. And so by the time states were passing these laws that really led to a lot of the mass incarceration we have today, crime rates had actually already started to decline and continued to decline. And then people learned the wrong lesson and thought, oh, it must be because we locked them up. But there have been plenty of studies to show that we don't actually know why crime rates fell, but it wasn't because we locked a whole bunch of people up because in states where that didn't happen, crime rates fell at the same rate. So in 1994, Governor George Allen came to a, a special session of the General Assembly and said, crime is rampant. We have to do something about it. That doing something means locking a lot of people up. It means abolishing parole. It means making sure that people serve at least 85% of all felony sentences that they receive in Virginia courts. And it means building more prisons. And so that's exactly what a bipartisan group at the General Assembly did. There were a very few people who voted against abolishing parole and truth and sentencing. And so those are the laws that we ended up with in 1995. And since then, you know, Virginia has been one of the worst states in the country in terms of locking people up for a really long time. Yeah, that was one of my other questions. Like, of course, the U.S. itself has one of the highest incarceration rates on earth. But within that, how does Virginia compare to the rest of the country? Like, can you help listeners get a sense of those numbers? Yeah, we incarcerate more people than I think any other, you know, civilized democracy in the world in Virginia. Our incarceration rate is higher than the United States average, and it's higher than any other democratic country in the world. That's so shocking. But I mean, of course, mass incarceration is deeply intertwined with racial injustice and inequity in the United States. I'm curious, would you be able to break down how that has played out in Virginia? So we have we have significant racial disparities in Virginia. You're you're about twice as likely to be incarcerated if you're black than if you're white. The prison population is close to 50% Black, even though uh, African Americans make up about 19% of Virginia's population. And that's because we have racial disparities at every spot in the system. So when people are being stopped for minor traffic infractions, um, it's more likely they're Black than white. When people are being searched, it's more likely they're Black than white. When people are being arrested, it's more likely they're Black than white. When people are being charged, it's more likely they're black than white. When people are being sentenced, it's more likely they're black than white and their sentences tend to be longer. Yeah, like I wanted to dive into some of those issues that Justice Forward Virginia is taking a stance against to get people more familiar with like, or a better picture of the sure. obstacles someone within the justice system faces. I suppose to start off, I was curious if we could dive a little bit deeper into mandatory minimums. 
Could you explain how do mandatory minimum sentences work and what is their impact on mass incarceration in Virginia? Sure. So Virginia has a code section that says if you receive a mandatory minimum sentence, a circuit court judge who normally has a lot of power, they're the ones who sentence people for felonies, they have no authority to suspend that time. So the General Assembly has tied the hands of the judge and said, if it's a mandatory minimum, if that's what the prosecutor has charged, you have no discretion. You must sentence them to the full amount of time and they must serve every day of it. So that's what a mandatory minimum is. And so a prosecutor can effectively decide the sentence of a person based on what crimes they charge if there's a mandatory minimum for those crimes. There was a, a story that came up in the General Assembly this session about a young man who was at a party and, and some of his friends decide to rob some people. And he said, wait a minute, I wasn't part of that group. You know, I'm not guilty of this. And everyone else pled out and the prosecutor dropped a bunch of the mandatory minimum time. But for the person who said he wanted to go to trial and challenge it, they left them all the mandatory minimums on the table. And that young man got 33 years in prison and so got more time than the folks who pled guilty. That's the real injustice of mandatory minimums is that it penalizes people for exercising their constitutional rights. And so that's why Justice Forward has fought for eliminating mandatory minimums because judges who sentence people every single day ought to be able to decide what a person's sentence is, not the General Assembly who's not in court and seeing those cases on a, on a case-by-case basis. I mean, you touched on this briefly in what you just said, but you had mentioned plea deals. And I was curious, could you dive a little bit deeper in like breaking down how people can often feel incentivized to take a plea? But what are the implications of that for their for their case in their future? One thing that that Justice Forward has worked on in coalition with other groups, the, the pretrial justice coalition, is ensuring that as few people as possible are detained pretrial. So a large proportion of the people who are in Virginia's jails are not there because they were convicted of a crime. They're being detained pretrial. And that has enormous effects on the plea bargaining process. Because if you are locked up, you're far more likely to plead guilty to a crime you didn't commit than if you're out and working and housed and able to connect with your family and meet your lawyer at their office and talk about your case, the outcomes are exponentially worse for someone who is detained pretrial. And so many people just plead guilty whether or not they committed the crime because they're locked up pretrial. And that is no way to run a criminal justice system. We're just effectively allowing guilty people or innocent people to become guilty and get criminal records simply because we detain them pretrial. And so one of the issues that we've worked on is presumptions against bail. So for many years, Virginia had a list of crimes that simply if you were accused of the crime, a judge would presume that you should not get bail. And so we repealed presumptions. Senator Deeds carried a bill in 2021. We repealed presumptions. We said, if the judge decides you're a danger to the community or um, you're a flight risk, then you ought to be detained pretrial. And if you're not, then you ought to be released. 
And so we've returned to that that basic analysis on a case by case basis that judges will will make that decision. And that has enormous positive impacts on plea bargaining because people don't feel like they need to plead guilty to crimes they they commit when they're not sitting in jail. I also wanted to dive a little bit further into like probation reform Mm -hmm. and post-conviction. Could you explain what is truth in sentencing and how has that affected mass incarceration in Virginia? Yeah. So that special session that I mentioned in 1994 that Governor Allen convened, they effectively did two things. They abolished parole, meaning that for most people, once they're sentenced, they have to serve the vast majority of that sentence. And and the other piece of legislation that was passed that really significant was truth in sentencing. And that truth in sentencing part says you have to serve 85%. Previously, you know, you could get a 10-year sentence, but the parole board could decide after three that there was no risk to public safety in releasing you. And in 1994, we just made a policy choice that we're not going to let parole boards decide when people get out. Now, what's happened since then is the prison population continues to age. And so now we have nearly a fourth of all the people who are in prison are over 50 years old. And criminologists will tell you that most people who commit crimes, and especially violent crimes, are young. And so we're we're housing, we're caging a lot of people in our prisons who are not likely to commit new crimes. And, and there's really not much of a release mechanism because we abolished parole and we have truth in sentencing. So during the really golden years of 2020 and 2021, I mean, there were a lot of awful things going around, but criminal justice reform in Virginia, it was a special time. We had three General Assembly sessions where we got a whole bunch of reforms passed. And one of those was to expand something called earned sentence credits. And this is how you go from serving 100% of your sentence down to 85. And so under the old regime before, before 2020, 2021, you could earn sentence credits that gets you down to 85%. So that if you're behaving yourself in DOC, then you'd only have to serve 85%. When we expanded earned sentence credits, we set up new rules that say if people are taking classes, they're working, they're not getting disciplinary charges from DOC, really leaves a lot of decisions up to DOC, but which is not great. But it's still good because now there are some people who can get down to 65%. So we've we've taken a little bit of a bite out of truth in sentencing by expanding earned sentence credits. I mean, you referred to 2020 and 2021 as like the golden years, quote unquote. The past couple of years in the divided House and Senate has been very different. Like, how did you sum up this last General Assembly session's approach to criminal justice in 2023? Yeah, I think we have one approach in the House and we have another approach in the Senate. I will say, you know, one of the biggest changes coming for next year is that this redistricting that's happened in Virginia is going to have significant impacts on our criminal legal system because we've already seen, I think it's up to 43 now of the 140 Virginia delegates and senators who are up for re-election this fall. I think 43 of them have announced they're either retiring or seeking other offices. And so a lot of the people who've been enacting the laws that really you know, determine whether people are free or not in Virginia 
are not going to be there anymore. One of them is Rob Bell, who happens to be my delegate in Albemarle County. Rob Bell saw it as his project to make sure that truth and sentencing and the abolition of parole were upheld. And he's gone. He was redistricted into a, a place where he was not likely to win. And that is going to have a significant impact because he was the funnel through which all criminal justice reform bills had to go in the House. The last two years have really been about protecting the progress that we got in 2020 and 2021. I would say in 2022, Justice Forward proposed some positive reforms. And if they got through the Senate, great, but they weren't going to go anywhere in the House. And if we started them in the House, they weren't going to go anywhere. So then in 2023, we just pivoted to defense and said, look, we're going to have a completely new General Assembly next year. Let's just protect what we got in 2020 and 2021. And um, we'll start again in 2024. That was Rob Poggenklass, Interim Executive Director at Justice Forward Virginia. There was a lot in the interview that Alana couldn't get to. That included pretextual police stops and defelonizing drug possession. For a deeper dive into those issues, you can check out Justice Forward VA's website. The link is in the show notes. Or uh, let us know if you want to hear more from Rob on the show. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. You can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. You can go ahead and subscribe, and uh, leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the Collective. From science, to history, to music and community affairs, we amplify the voices of people in our community, and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. So when it comes to putting people in prison, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions as a society. Is it a matter of punishment, quarantine, or is it about rehabilitation? For advocates of social justice, the point of prison is to rehabilitate people who have committed crimes. That everyone who's done wrong is capable of bettering themselves, of learning, growing, and putting some good out into society once they're released. Hell, even if that isn't a priority then what is a priority is making sure we lower recidivism rates. That means making it less likely that people released from prison commit more crimes and get rearrested. With that in mind, let's talk about an approach to incarceration that's not very well known. Prison education. Like I mentioned at the top, these programs send college educators to local prisons, where they teach classes, grade papers, and award degrees to incarcerated students who put in the time to study and pass. Earlier this week, I sat down with John Donnelly, He's Vice President for Instruction and Student Services at Piedmont Virginia Community College. He's been teaching in local prisons for the last 20 years, and is in charge of PVCC's Higher Education in Prison program. I started by asking him the obvious question. Why dedicate the time and resources to give people in prison higher education? I think it sort of goes back to our mission, right? So the community college mission is all about open access institutions, right? We uh, we, uh, anybody who can benefit from a higher education, we accept. And when we say education for all, we mean education for all. And that includes individuals who are incarcerated. And so uh, we, we feel that that is a, just an important part of our mission. Because they are incarcerated does not change their status as a student at PVCC. 
or their uh, their need and desire to get higher education and their deserving uh, nature of getting higher education. So uh, we, we, we don't see the prison walls as a barrier. We see it as an opportunity to educate more students who, who can benefit from higher education. And so the program is exactly the same, the same rigor, uh, the same coursework, um, the same requirements for, for on-campus students as, as they are for students who are incarcerated. Could you talk a little bit about your experience as a teacher going into prisons and teaching? Sure. Just, you know, so I, when I first started this work, probably in 2003, at Germanic Community College, I was an uh, assistant dean and a faculty member. And so I, I sort of inherited their program that they were, they were offering at Coffeywood Correctional Facility. It was a very small program, uh, sort of tied to some uh, federal funding at the time for incarcerated uh, youth uh, between 18 and 24. And so uh, I, I, I oversaw the, the, the small program and then I ended up teaching in it. And it was probably some of the most rewarding work that I've, that I've done. Um, you know, the students are, uh, I think that we have uh, understand the importance of education. Uh, they know that it is uh, it is very much vital to their success if they are released. Um, they value uh, that we're there. They're thankful, um, and you know they they are they are some of the best students that we have. Uh, to be honest with you, they they take it seriously. They study hard. They ask probing questions. Um, they uh, they are definitely prepared, and um, and there's great enrichment and in, in, inside the classroom. Uh, we you know we see those students as individuals, as a as a community of scholars, just as as they would be in any other classroom. And so, I want as a faculty member, I want to know what they think. I want to know their experiences. I want to try to help shape those experiences in different ways to make them think differently, to critically think all those things that that we do as educators. Um, and it, they, they don't have that, a lot of those opportunities. Um, and being incarcerated oftentimes means you're, you're a number, um, that, there's, you know, that there's not a lot of uh, individuals who are asking you for your opinion or your thoughts or what you believe or where you've come from. Uh, we, we will value that. And that just actually makes the classroom much more enriching. Um, and, uh, and just really, it's, it's just an, an amazing sort of opportunity not, not that our traditional classrooms are not that, but it, it's just a unique and different uh, experience for those who teach in that setting. So you mentioned some of the practical benefits, and uh, I was wondering if you could talk more about that. I feel like when this topic gets discussed, uh, one of the knee-jerk reactions is kind of, well, we shouldn't be wasting our money throwing it away on these people. So what do you say to that? Uh, again, our mission as community colleges, it's sort of our foundation, right? But I think if you look at uh, some of the things that have happened lately about funding, so uh, starting July 1 of this year, uh, all incarcerated individuals across the nation who are eligible for Pell Grants will be able to get Pell Grants. Um, and that is a long time coming because that, that, that was taken away in 1992 by legislation and has just been, been approved and will be implemented in 2023. Um, that bipartisan uh, deal that occurred is that doesn't happen very much in Washington anymore, but it did. So you had both sides of the aisle believing that in, in educating incarcerated individuals benefits them and society, right? So I sort of take it and sort of see it in very in two different ways, right? So there is always the the benefit of education and recidivism. So we know there's lots of studies 
that folks who get education or who have education, whether that's K-12, whether that's college, some college, uh, community college, bachelor's degree, their rates of recidivism are, are very much lower. And I think for a lot of legislators, that is a powerful message and a powerful reason to do this work. For others, um, and, and that includes me as, as, a, as a faculty member, uh, it's also a social justice uh, piece that you know our, our students certainly have probably done things. They've made bad decisions. They are now incarcerated. Uh, they are serving their time, but at the same time, they are still human beings. And, uh, and as our mission states, uh, we, we, we educate all. And so uh, to discount or exclude a group of people because they have made um, sometimes significant mistakes or serious mistakes uh, doesn't sort of uh, jive with our, our mission of educating all. And so uh, it is because, you know, we want to make them better people. We want to make them, um, you know, understand society and be able to be productive citizens uh, in society by, by using skills and knowledge and experiences and critical thinking to you know, move this society forward in really good ways. So, so there's that recidivism, uh, criminal justice sort of reason, and there's also sort of this social justice. I think they're both equally valid, and I'm glad that they both came together in this opportunity to, to provide some financial support to those who are incarcerated to be able to, to get degrees and certificates. So what does it take to make this kind of program work in terms of resources, personnel, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I think the, uh, the, the you know, the major hurdle here is is uh, is tuition dollars, right? Before we had federal Pell, um, the basic barrier was students just couldn't afford it, right? They couldn't afford the tuition. And we have to charge tuition, right? We can't do this work for free because we need to pay faculty and the overhead and all of that. So So it takes tuition dollars, which, you know, we have. Uh, but it also takes committed faculty. I think we need, um, we and we have a group of faculty who really feel passionate about this work, and they they want to go. They want to to teach. Um, they ask to teach. So we so we need that. And also, uh, because the federal government and Pell and the FAFSA can be a very heavy bureaucratic uh, challenge, um, we need somebody to oversee the program. And so we have a dedicated full time person who who kind of oversees everything. And there's lots of things that you can imagine, you know, being distant, uh, things happen. And so um, you've got to sort of physically take things and books and all sorts of logistical issues. And so having somebody to to do that uh, work or oversee that work is, is really instrumental, especially as we get bigger and we're going to educate more students. I think one of the things that, that you know, is on the horizon that is is really significant and real a real need and uh, is technology uh, because you know as as everybody across the Commonwealth and across the nation is eligible, there will be more demand for this, right? And so, not every college or university is willing or wanting to do this work. And so, to provide as much access as we can, uh, technology is key. We learned this in the pandemic. When the COVID came along, it shut our programs down because we were heavily dependent on in-person. And so we literally were on a hiatus for two years without any ability for our students to continue their studies, which was devastating. So we see that the need just in those cases when, God forbid, another pandemic happened or something happened that, that is technology can help us continue on with that education. But at the same time, it also it, it, it can open up access. 
And I think one of the challenges for a lot of a lot of departments of corrections is how to uh, implement technology, but yet keeping security uh, at for, foremost, which is their primary concern. Here in Virginia, I think we're we're, we're slow to that. Um, to be honest, I, I wish we were faster. I understand the the need to balance those two issues, but if you look across the nation, you see at least you know a half dozen to a dozen states who have done this work, and and I fundamentally believe that. Um, Access to higher education through technology and security are not mutually exclusive. You can't have both because other states have done it and done it well. And so that's one thing. And also technology to help students with technology, right? We, we need to provide them access to online platforms for, for learning. We need to provide them with uh, Excel and Word and all of those things that are really required, computer competency skills that are really requ- required. Uh, if if you are to be released to be successful in society, right? And so that technology is slow to come as well. In addition to larger technology, that can can open up access uh, for more students. And you know, we we see that the sky's the limit. There are many many. I, I don't. I think eight hundred thousand. I think I saw a number eight hundred thousand incarcerated individuals who could be eligible for Pell grants across the nation. Um, that's a lot. I don't know how many in Virginia, but I know that we at PVCC and others who are doing this work in Virginia want to meet that need. That is our mission, and we want to be able to provide that education. But the only way to do it is through the use of technology, and we're not just not there yet, and we're really pushing hard to try to get there. Okay, so stepping back, kind of broadly speaking, um, why should somebody who is sort of not very well versed in this topic uh, not only be kind of interested, but but care about the work being done here? You know, why does this matter? Well, I think it's the power of education. Uh, that that's what it all is all about. I think you would say anybody would say that you know education can change a lot of people's trajectory in life, uh, even you know. The more educated you are, the, the the more likely you are to vote, to be civically engaged, to participate, to make good decisions, to, you know, to make a nice salary, all of those things. So educate, you know, knowledge is power and education is power. And so, you know, I'm a big proponent of education for everybody, including this population. Right. And so this population, especially um, because uh, individuals have made poor decisions and and they find themselves incarcerated because of that. That's not a disqualifier for being a, a human being and for the power of education to serve you. And so that's 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 why I think this is important work. There are benefits to education. You can sort of look at society in general, but especially for this for this group and whether we're talking about recidivism rates declining, uh, making more informed decisions, becoming more uh, civically engaged, it's all wraps together into to making individuals in the society more productive um, and, you know, to, to just sort of the common good of who we are as individuals and who we are as people in, an, in a society. And so um, it, we would never exclude anybody uh, from, from education who could benefit. And I'd, I fundamentally believe that we shouldn't um, exclude those who are incarcerated either. And so that's the important work. It's It's just plugging that group of people into the rest of society who we feel uh, education benefits and, and, and not be exclusionary in that way. That was John Donnelly, VP for Instruction and Student Services at Piedmont Virginia Community College. Thanks to him and Rob Poggenklass for speaking with us today. My name is Arian Ballou, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. 
Our producer this week was Alana Bittner. Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away. <laughs>